Welcome to Psyched for Business, helping business leaders understand and apply cutting-edge business psychology principles in the workplace. Hi, and welcome to Psyched for Business. I'm your host, Richard Anderson, founder at Evolve Assess. In today's episode, I'm joined by occupational psychologist Paula Brockwell, who is a specialist in helping HR teams improve culture across their business. In this episode, we talk through all things culture and employee experience, and Paula offers some brilliant insights into how businesses can look to improve this in 2023. I hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks again for listening. Paula Brockwell, welcome to Psych for Business. Thanks for joining oh, me. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Pleasure to have you on this lovely Friday, overcast Friday as it is up here <laughs> in the east of England. Um, and you just told me before we started recording, Paula, that... Um, Culture is your favourite subject, your favourite topic to talk about. So, absolutely, um, I planned this all around culture. So you'll be pleased to you'll be pleased to learn that. We'll have a little chat about culture. Why not? Um, but but I think what and obviously I'll, I'll, I've done a, an intro kind of separately to this, of course, Paula, to introduce yourself. But I, I'm never going to introduce you as well as you can introduce yourself. So if you'd be happy to, would you mind telling the audience kind of who you are and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, so my name's Paula Brockwell. I'm an occupational psychologist. Um, and honestly, I've been kicking about this stuff for a long time, you know, kind of doing everything from leadership development um, to culture fit assessments and things like that over the years. But um, I find my home probably about 10 years ago in culture change and really trying to look at how you influence behaviours and influence whole organisations to get people to behave how they want. So I'm a bit obsessed with it, really. I just love creating kind of happy, healthy environments for people to really succeed at work. Well, it's a fascinating subject, and uh, I know that you call yourself on LinkedIn the the culture cultivator. Is that is that right? Yeah. I like that. I think that's a, yeah. that's a really really catchy title. I think so. Culture is something that really interests me. It's something that I've always I always like to think that I've prided myself on building a, a great culture in my business. But I'm always going to say that, Paula. Of course, I guess uh, the the real um, honest people will be my employees. But I guess if we take a step back and maybe kind of set, start with a bit of a blank, blank slate, what do we mean by culture in a company organizational culture what's it all about yeah well for me it's about how it feels to work here in all honesty if we ask the question of what does it mean it's that adding up bit of what does it mean in terms of how it feels to work here and how is culture defined it's all the systems the processes the ingredient habits beliefs behaviors that make people feel as they do but also act as they do so culture is this weird kind of self-reinforcing thing where it encourages people to behave certain ways but how we behave also influences the culture so it's this strange kind of feedback loop that happens in terms of it encourages people to be a certain way but then how we are actually influences how it feels which in turn encourages people to behave in a certain way yeah it's it, it, it's really interesting so if we were again blank slate obviously great definition of culture but but if i wanted to for my business start to defi- define the culture i don't know whether that would be the right term but if i if yeah. i could define my culture what would be so if you were to you know come into my business or if you would even be a fly on the wall what would you be recommending that I do to define a culture that I want so that the, the ways in which I want my employees to behave and the, the spirit or whatever that might be across the team within a culture. What, what should I start by doing? 
Yeah, well, for me, I think, you know, a lot of a lot of the culture models out there are really complex around looking at different kind of micro pieces of the ecosystem and saying, you know, we've got to look exactly, our leadership's got to look exactly like this, etc. For me, though, the starting point really is harnessing the, the idea of employee experience and having a conversation with people about how do we need it to feel here for us to be able to deliver our business results? So I think there's a big thing about simplicity, that idea of everyday experience, how does it feel, is massively uniting, easy for everybody to access and really easy to measure and stay accountable against. But I think there's also a big piece about how does it need to be here for the business to succeed? So we've got to understand that culture isn't just a nice to have, it's a tool for the business to thrive and succeed. And so understanding where you're going with your business, what your goals are, what does that mean in terms of the type of talent, the tone of behaviour that you need, um, and then translating that into the experience that will help that type of talent and that tone of behaviour thrive is really important. So understand where you want to get to and what you're trying to deliver and what your people yeah, need to do. Business goal. Yeah. yeah, and then connect, well, how does it need to feel here for people to feel really happily excited about making that happen that for me is the magic of culture and I think a lot of times we overcomplicate it into lots yeah. of different models and measures but just how do we make it feel you know what does it need to feel like for people to do what we need them to do is really what it boils down to yeah interesting so um how much of it and again this might be the one of the maybe the, the overcomplicated models that you've just referred to but but how much of it kind of ties into to company values yeah, so I think values are really interesting. You know, mm. if I'm completely honest, and maybe I'll be a bit contentious here, but I've never yes. really seen new values or imposed values work in an organisation. I think company value, people try to use values to say, this is the intent, this is how we would like you to behave. So it's trying to direct that tone of behaviour, but they're massively broad words that we can all interpret differently. So, you know, what you think is innovative as a head of a tech company, might be really mm. different to what I think is innovative as a psychologist who's you know digging yeah. into the, the past on things potentially maybe not maybe not <laughs> myself off but you know it's pr- pr- probably is different in terms particularly if you're thinking about innovative tech we'll have very different views on that I'm excited that I've got a Calendly link at the moment let's be honest so but <laughs> you know so how I describe innovative will be really different from how you describe it mm-hmm. and so if we're trying to use those words to unite, we're not going to be able to because everybody brings a different frame of reference to it. So they're interesting. They're great if you can capture what's ex- if the, the values have already aligned and you can capture what's already existing in the business. Great. But for true kind of culture transformation and cultivation, I don't really think they're that helpful because people get excited about building them, but then they don't really know how to enact them and they don't know how to evaluate them or encourage them because they're such big concepts. For me, that piece around how does it feel here, that's are our values alive? You know, are they acting out and are they having an impact on people? So they're almost like it's the back of the same equation. It's just at the back end of it, a values and input that's really difficult to quantify the um, the, um, employee experience as the outcome. And I guess I, for me, that shift is massively important within culture change. It's a bit like the the evolution that performance management took, say, 10 years ago, when we stopped saying you need to make 10 widgets an hour and said and said, you know, make 10 amazing, um, you know, um, 
whatever microphones that people want to buy or get 10 people buying these things. So inputs versus outcomes. A lot of the HR um, world and the, the performance and business world has shifted to outcome focus, but culture yeah. still focuses on inputs and values in a lot of places, which for me is a reason why it's not doing what it needs to do a lot of the times. And culture should all be kind of governed by that whole output or outcome focus. Yeah. So even the, the example that you gave before that we might have a different idea of what's innovative in technology, so presumably that doesn't much matter as long as we're heading and aiming towards the same goal and it feels the same for both of us absolutely. as far as the vision of the company is concerned. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, you know, if if the goal, in fact, is that we feel that we are, um, that we're both kind of um, trying new things, that we feel like we're experimenting, that we feel open, you know, that, that we, we feel that other people are open to new ideas and approaches. So if you if we were working in the same business and you came to me and said, I've got this really great bit of tech that I think would fix things for you and, I, and you should be holding me accountable to saying, yeah, sounds amazing. Let's apply that. Let's take an innovative approach approach but that's more about making 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 you feel like I'm open to ideas and open to your views and that you're valued and considered and driving that innovation through input rather than me being something that I probably don't need to be in the system really it would be your job to bring that to me and me to adopt it of course yeah so it's a really interesting way of of looking at it I like it um so when when okay so we're talking about how it feels to be here and outcome kind of generated is that something that is typically kind of, I was going to use the word dictator, that would be the wrong word, but is that something that's um, kind of uh, implemented by uh, the owners of the company, senior management initially? How does that, how does that in your experience, how does that typically work? Yeah, you know, I think there's a really interesting thing, again, that's happening within the HR field where um, often culture is seen as something that's owned by HR and a lot of HR functions are transforming themselves into the people and culture function. That seems to be the the next iteration of of HR. My view, in all honesty, is that, that HR are the cultivators, the the, the owners, um, I guess the champions of culture, but actually the people who really make it happen are everyone, you know, it's got to be owned by the leaders in terms of the tone, that definition of what great looks like, because they are the people who are setting the strategic direction, but they've also got the ability to influence the infrastructure, the systems, the business model will impact the culture. So if if on one side, a business model, a, a tone of decision making, resourcing is being set by business leaders but then they're asking HR to set a culture that is totally counter to what's happening operationally it's never going to come together so really those two pieces of the system need to come together and say this is what great needs to look like while listening to everyone else listening to colleagues about what they need to be able to thrive that's the the magic comes from everybody being part of it but leaders and HR leaders really coming together and owning that and and yeah, HR is being enablers of culture rather than the owners of it, I think. Yeah, of course. And presumably for businesses who maybe don't have an independent HR function, it would just be those leaders. Because I think one of the one of the areas that I've got a real interest in is, and you know this already, is kind of small business and, and, and yeah. businesses that are growing from being kind of yeah. almost startups or micro-sized business, particularly in the tech space, often you'll you'll see and you'll again you'll know this yourself that, that a lot of tech companies will go out they'll get vc funding investment and then they'll scale rapidly and they'll be recruiting lots and lots and lots of people and i can imagine that for those types of businesses maybe just before they've they've brought in an hr function a specific hr function um but they're all of a sudden they're, they're bringing in a lot of employees i can imagine the culture drift in that type of organization 
and I'm not just saying tech across this will be the world over, no doubt. But um, do you see that quite often that the culture will will drift completely from what it was when the, the company first started out? Absolutely, because I think often in that kind of small startup, kind of starting to scale up situation, you don't have to naturally cultivate it. The team is small enough that direct leadership impact, how you recruit, the team makeup will self-regulate and set a culture that works. So where it becomes um, needed to more consciously cultivate it, I think, is is particularly as, well, in a systemized way, you, you consciously cultivate it when you're a small team anyway, don't you? But in a more systemized way, if you're going to do that, as you grow, often what you find is you get dilution or drift. It's, it's, it's absolutely right. And I think one of the things that great leaders can do is if they know they're going to scale is capture the magic while you're small so define what has made you great understand that systemize it define that bit around how we want it to feel around here and then you can start to make conscious efforts in your growth about how do you consciously cultivate that and I use the word cultivate because I think culture is a bit like um, our culture is a bit like gardening almost you know you choose yeah. if you know what flowers you want you choose the soil you decide how often you need to water you figure out what plants go beside each other to complement each other so if you're doing that piece as you scale, you're giving yourself a real chance to succeed. But you've you've got to, um, well, you don't have to do it early, but it's helpful to do it while the yeah. magic is still really clear, because then you can say, this is what our magic recipe for growth is. Let's see how we protect that as we work our way through. Yeah, brilliant. So so just again, just to maybe use me, me as an example. So I've got, there's maybe six of us, there is six of us in the team, but let's say that we want to, turn the team into nine or 10 people by the end of this year. I mean, that's ambitious. It's like not going to happen by the end of the year, but still, you know, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a big growth, almost, you know, a hundred percent extra members of staff probably over the coming, you know, let's say nine months or whatever. Now, obviously I love my team. We've got a, you know, how I, what I feel is a brilliant culture. Again, you'll have to double check that with them. I hope they would say the same thing, but, but for me, it's massively important that that culture is, maintained because it's going to be it'll be it'll be horrendous if we have a completely different culture not just for me but for the employees that have been there up until this point so if you were if you were supporting me Paula it would be you know um, presumably I have to hire for for, for for cultural fit but what are the maybe what what's the what's the biggest or the most important thing that you would tell me to do in order to make sure that the next four employees that I take on are going to mirror the culture that we've built so far. Well, I, I would suggest it's less about culture fit, in all honesty, and more about culture ad. So thinking about where you're going and how how your tone needs, because what you do as a team of six versus what you do as a team of nine or 12 or 24, some of that you'll really be able to keep and protect, but some of it might need to shift a little bit to ensure that you don't get, you know, small group, there's a risk as you scale of in-group, out-group, et cetera, you know, that kind of informalness of family that can become with small group becomes difficult when you think about performance yeah. management and goal alignment as you get bigger. So recognising the small bits that you might need to evolve, not let go of, but evolve and look at how they might play out a bit differently in a bigger team I would say is the first piece and then yes. I would start to think about well how do my new hires add to that how do they help me evolve mm -hmm. that systemize that prepare for um, enacting that in a bigger team and bring my current team along on that journey because there will be a transition and an evolution for them so for me I would say the first step is more about 
well, where are we at the minute? What's really working? But how might that be challenged or, you know, stress test it a bit with the bigger team? Is that really going to deliver what I need or do we need to evolve any bits and then start to think about and that ideal culture moving forward? How will these people really complement and flavour and, you know, build build the magic that we've got rather than just kind of slotting in perhaps to what we have already because it will invariably need to change a little bit at least. Yeah, of course. No, that makes complete sense. And um, I guess I, I'm, I'm just looking at it through the lens of a, a you know, small business owner. There, there are lots of inevitably huge organisations that this affects massively, I, I would imagine. How has, and so how, I'm just trying to think of how to phrase this question, but how has remote working or hybrid working or everything, you know, the, the new way of working since the pandemic, has that affected culture across organizations or is that just not isn't just not coming to play maybe i'm overthinking that what um, how have I, you found I think that? i think it has massively a lot of the clients that mm-hmm. i'm working with now are really grappling with that sense of connection and communication you know those are being re- real issues now for them in terms of um, um how do they support people on that i suppose i've got a bigger question i always got a bigger question haven't i but um you know for me i think the pandemic fundamentally shifted people's connection to work and their expectation of how work fits into the rest of their life and so some of the challenges around connection are about remote or flexible working and less you know just face time with each other and the fact that businesses maybe haven't evolved how they use that time together or how they create meaningful connections they've just tried to do it as they've always done and it's not working so there's some evolution that's needed on that but I also think that there needs to be an acceptance that work isn't the be all and end all for a lot of people now and actually Mm -hmm. creating that more balanced deal and making it feel helping people identify what's in it for them and what work helping them really see what role works needs to play for them now moving forward to support that reconnection is important I think this kind of tendency to just try and pull people back into the office and get them back to the good old days you know if everybody's around the water cooler the magic will happen again I think that's really missing the mark because it doesn't pick up on the fact that actually for some people their view of work and their view of how work fits is just fundamentally shifted and that's that's not going to answer it it's going to make them go and find a job that's more flexible where there'll still be the same challenges really I don't know there's some businesses who are doing it really well I don't know if you've seen this as well but you know like I, I used to work in, in recruitment in the very early stages of my career. Well, I worked in our recruiter. I was um, I was part of the kind of big scale assessment and um, selection teams for, for building government, big government departments at the time. Um, yeah. And so I know a lot of people from that time who now work in big um, kind of recruitment process outsourcing businesses. And a lot of them do work and have worked for 10 or 15 years virtually because it's, you know, multinational um, accounts um, working across the globe. And they do a great job of creating that connection and that team sense. And I think what we actually need to do is look at where it's already working and learn some lessons from that rather than deciding yeah. it isn't working really. Yeah, no. I, I, Sorry, I it's my flexible it. working soapbox. <laughs> well, it's 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 a, it's a really <laughs> interesting topic, and I, I, we could probably talk for ages on it because it's um it's 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 been a challenge for me personally because when I when I first started, and I've talked about this a couple of times on podcasts previously, but when I started doing doing the business that I'm, that I'm doing Evolve, I started and I did it from home exclusively, and it was kind of six years ago, just just six years I think today or tomorrow, um, randomly enough, but um. 
But at the time, I was working exclusively from home because I couldn't afford an office. That was the reason that I didn't choose to have an office. That was that was the reality at the time. Yeah, it wasn't <laughs> um, a choice, absolutely. <laughs> no, it wasn't a choice. But, but the funny thing is, Paula, at the time, it seemed to me that every single person I was speaking to was in an office and they were having a good time and they were with colleagues and it was just me by myself. And as an extrovert, naturally, I, I, I really struggled. And when I started the company out the first couple of employees Ashley who you know for example she she's exactly the same she wanted to work in an office and then the next person wanted to work in an office and it was really tricky because when I've interviewed recently it's been very much you know what's the flexibility here you know can can we work from and it's not a problem to work from home we do I mean I'm at home as, as we sit now I normally do a kind of three and two but it's it's a really tough one as well because I'm going to have certain people that want that level of well everyone wants flexibility of course but certain people who want to work at home certain people who want to work in the yeah. office and it's just a yeah it's a, it's, a, it's a really interesting interesting one but you see as you rightly say that the, there are loads of people who are doing it really well yeah um, I think there's a bit isn't there about curating correction connection points so um I've, I've been I've got one client who I've worked with through the whole pandemic supporting them in terms of creating that comms and connection and the like and and they did very much make the choice of trying to get people back into the office setting a, a minimum number of days and they only said two days a week but one of the we, we got a lot of feedback on that whenever it first started to help them evolve the approach and one of the things that they heard and responded to really quickly was people being massively frustrated that they were coming into the office to spend a day on teams calls anyway when they felt like they could have done that at home and so we were really talking about that definition of how do you use your office days how do you manage team or cross team diaries to make sure that people have have those connection points so I think there's a thing about a healthy dose of purpose and curating your contact with people to build that connection so if you are if you have got a team with different preferences you're being really clear about what the benefit of coming together or not coming together is so that then people can make the right choices about how to connect sure. and how not to connect really absolutely so so one of the things i've, I've you know I've, as you know paul I've, i follow you quite closely on linkedin where we've been connected for a little while it's nice to see an active poster on linkedin i always try and uh, do the same that. myself i'm getting better than i was brilliant but uh, you talk a lot about employee experience and kind of how that ties into to culture it's not something i'm hugely familiar with uh, in truth i'd love to learn more but why have you why have you chosen the route of employee experience when it comes to your posts and the work that you do yeah, well, I think, you know, having worked in culture for a long time, I think that, you know, I started to really focus on this breadth of culture um, while working within the wellbeing space. And I think that particularly 10 years ago when I started to work there, still probably quite a lot now, people wanted interventions that were just focused on changing individuals' behaviours rather than thinking about um, how you support people to really be the best they can be. So, you know, it kind of, it just frustrated me that culture change often focuses on what individuals need to do rather than the whole system, how it influences them. And I think the lovely thing about employee experience is it uses user-centred design to really put colleagues at the heart of figuring out what's the best thing to do and what's the change that, um, what's the change that they see needs to happen. And for me, there's a whole thing about you've got to activate the whole herd if you want to make that whole change happen. And employee experience does that. Like a big part of it, in all honesty, I think there's, you know, there's a massive movement happening within it. And a big part of it is about taking the employee life cycle and designing the key contact points with colleagues to maximise value around those using that user centred design approach. I'm less interested in that, if I'm honest. Um, I feel like, you know, that's something that organisations can do pretty independently with a bit of process mapping 
What I'm more interested in is all those other moments that people have and how do you really set your organisational ecosystem to allow people to succeed and really kind of those moments to encourage people to behave the way that you want them to because they feel motivated and excited to do so really. Yeah, interesting. So um, user-centric design, would you mind just explaining what, what that means yeah. for the layperson? Is all right? So, yeah, sorry. Yeah, the idea of it really is, is that you you put the user and their experience at the centre of anything that you do. So often whenever we design processes, we think about the process owners and how things are easy for them and how they get the information that they need. But that really, that design process flips that on the side, or, you know, on its head and thinks about, well, how do the end users of this process or the or the, um, the ultimate recipients of this, how will this make them feel and how can we maximise positive impact for them? So it comes really from tech design, kind of user interface, um, process design around that. It then headed into the customer experience in terms of driving customer experience and it's beautifully making its way into the employee experience space, which I think is absolutely right because we need to think about how we're making colleagues feel if we want them to feel like, um, or if we want them to, to behave how we want them to, really. Yeah, br- brilliant. Um, so I've, I've read a little bit, obviously, a little bit of preparation, of course, for this podcast, but I'd seen it previously on LinkedIn, um, the EX index um, that, you've, that you've recently, yeah. I don't know whether it's recent, yeah. I've, I've, I've seen it recently, but um, would you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it is It is pretty recent. But to be honest, it's kind of come from that last, you know, 10 years of, of working with businesses. And I think being in a lot of boardrooms where um, I'm talking to leaders and really trying to get them to see that connection between the business and the environment that you create through either your own behaviour or the choices that you make around operating models, strategic priorities, whatever it may be, helping them see how the environment that you create impacts the behaviours that you get. So trying to break through that narrative of being brought in on a consultancy project and somebody saying to me, you just need to make those people more personally responsible and helping them break down and say, look, all of these things in your environment are telling those people not to take responsibility, to ask you for permission, to double check things, that it's risky to um, make mistakes because they're negatively impacted or whatever it may be. So helping people see how the system is encouraging people to behave in different ways. But that conversation can be really loopy and muddy and people can feel quite defensive in it because you're encouraging them to look at themselves as well as everything else. So I kind of used all that experience and all those conversations and a shed load of research around, you know, what drives certain behaviours and work to say, let's just break this down. So what the EX index does in short is it... um, it allows you to kind of say these are things that are acceptable to us around here. This is the sort of this is kind of what we do, and then gives you back an indication of well, what does that mean across five cultural pillars? How would we? How are you likely to describe your culture? But what does that mean in terms of how people are likely to feel, and therefore how are they likely to behave? So it's a great way if you've either got some really great behaviours that you want to get a sense of how do I replicate these? You can see probably what's driving it and it's useful to do some more stuff that enables that but also on the other side it allows you to identify what I call your culture killers so the things where maybe it's personal responsibility maybe it's risk aversion maybe it's a discomfort with change those things that no matter what you try and do to get rid of them just seem to hang around what that's probably telling you is there's some unconscious stuff in your environment that you're not noticing that's encouraging those behaviors to stay and the EX index kind of helps you identify those so that you can start to kind of say right well 
this is the stuff, you know, this is why it's happening. So I've got to go back and look at my system. If I want those behaviours to change, I've got to stop blaming those people and tweak my system to get what I yeah, want. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, so, it so, sounds really interesting. So the, the cultural killers or the culture killers that you, you talked about before, do you ever find that, are they completely unique on a kind of case-by-case basis or do you find that some are more um, apparent than others? Yeah, do you know, it's it, they're pretty common, to be honest. You know, there, right. are, there are some things that, um, you know, very similar, um, you know, it really, it really is a lot of human behaviour can be bundled into categories. And I think there's a range, there's probably, there's probably four of, well, there are, there, for, for me in my model anyway, there's kind of five categories of, of culture killers that drive things through that are likely to impact things. So, um, you know, I think people, different organisations will have a different mix of those things because it all comes down to legacy history and those inherent systems and norms that are in place. But it, I, I've never, I've, I don't think, well, for a long time, I haven't been surprised when I've seen certain behaviours because I can <laughs> normally see where they're coming from in the ecosystem. So it's a bit like, yeah. you know, individual human behaviour. We're all quite predictable sausages, really. You know, you can codify it. Yeah. it. So organisations work the same way. They're just massive. They're just big systems, you know, that that um, if you push one lever, you can't, you know, you get something out the other end. So once you start to look at it as a whole system, suddenly it makes sense. Where a lot of, I think the challenge that a lot of businesses have is they look at one part of the system and they're like, why, either why are my leaders doing this or why are my colleagues doing this and they look so much at the individuals that they can't understand what's driving it but as soon as you step back and look at that bigger picture suddenly you can see what's influencing through the whole system yeah and that like that's that's so important to me in my approach is that i just think you can you can try and train stuff out of people but it won't work because the system's encouraging them to do stuff you know that bit around stepping back to make a difference i think is massively important and i've I've got to a point in my career where if somebody's not asking me to do that i just say no thanks because i'm not interested in squeezing and squeezing one part of the system that that hasn't got the capacity to change by itself no i i I, I quite agree and and i was just thinking of a bit of a a random and probably quite a basic example so when i think and again it's, it's a little bit abstract to me because i've never worked in a big organization with lots of different departments but i hear anecdotally from other people when they have um the challenges that maybe they have in terms of culture they might have a a team or a, you know a bunch of teams and you know nine out of ten teams might be adopting and you know have a fantastic culture and then there's one team there who have a you know a middle manager team leader or whatever it's a bit of a bully that, that's not treating the team very well. And then all of a sudden, that entire team, the, they've got their heads down when they go to work, they're leaving left, right and centre. And if you were doing like an audit kind of culturally, and it was one particular individual, you know, is that is that something, is that often part of a bigger picture or can that often just be that one individual? Yeah, so sometimes it is just an individual. I think the question then comes when it, when I do things like cultural audit, what I will look at is each part of the, the system, what's going on and influencing this. And typically you'll find that 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 you can get isolated behaviour. Where it's the challenge for me, the more systemic issues come if that thing has been, if, if that behaviour has been tolerated or permitted for a long period of time, then that's at that point you might step back and say, right, systemically you need to have a think about this in terms of how you manage performance or how, 
or um, you know what one of the things that can often happen in cultures is performance uh, performance is prioritized over behavior so right. a very high performing manager who delivers a huge amount of commercial return to a business or whatever it may be their behavior is tolerated because of that value so where that's normally one of the reasons why those behavioural challenges or those team difficulties are tolerated for longer problem for, for longer issue or longer time points. But yeah. that doesn't taking that systemic approach doesn't mean that you don't sometimes just see that there is something going on within a particular team. In my view, looking at that manager, you would want to think about well, what's driven that behaviour, what's encouraged it, is it is it personally driven? Is it something about the the way they've been led is that something about the way the system's set up in terms of the pressure of the um the priorities is that about the business model and what they're you know what's being expected of them etc so you'd want to ask some bigger questions to avoid popping another manager in there and finding that the circumstances encourage the same behaviors for them yeah and if that's been tolerated for a long period of time then the issue is far more deep rooted and it's culturally across yeah. the business rather than that that one particular individual interesting yeah. um, yeah, go on. Sorry. I was just going to say, I think there's a thing, isn't there? You know, from that example, it's a big example of, you know, not complicating it for the sake of it. Understand, like, absolutely be curious and understand the root cause. So take a, a broad enough perspective that you understand what the root cause is, but always look for the simplest answer and the simplest solution. And I think that's important. You know, it's, yeah, looking broadly doesn't mean overcomplicating it. It just means making sure that you're excluding all the possibilities to get to the true answer, I think. Yeah, quite agree. I think that's, a, that, that's, that's exactly it. Um, in terms of uh, cultural audit, I think that's what we said, cultural audit or culture audit. Yeah. And, um, Sounds friendly, doesn't it? So you do a lot of this sort of thing for businesses. How, you know, how, do you, how do you typically go about that, Paula? If you were going into a big organisation who's got a few issues around culture or they're experiencing cultural drift and they want to get back on track, what, what, what would be the typical thing that you would, that you would do with these organizations yeah well so typically um i kind of use cultural the cultural audit for me is more about kind of shorter sharper issues and what's going on within um you know either teams or individuals so i do like remediation work if if as you said you know a manager or a leader is is behaving in a way that's unhelpful then often i'll do some one-to-one work to really understand what drives them what motivates them what's going on to drive those unhelpful behaviors and give them some feedback and coaching to support them to move into a different mode as well as helping the business to support them differently so I think it depends on what you're auditing really when I'm working at a larger um, culture you know a larger organizational level I try to avoid avoid if I'm honest the the kind of culture audit approach what I much prefer to do is support businesses to be focused more on well where are we going on things so rather than where you know let's come in and use a standard model to evaluate the gaps because no culture you know no culture for me should evaluate against a single model for me what we should really do at that whole business level in particular is say go right back to the start of our conversation what does good look like for your context your business goals and where you want to go set your ideal standard and then let's evaluate the gap in terms of where your current business is so technically do I then do a cultural audit against that standard yes do I like using that language no because it sounds like we're just looking at the <laughs> yeah I know so what you mean. it's probably it's probably more about the opportunities um but if you see the journey that people then need to take what you can then start to do is really say right well let's have a look at your 
heaven forbid your whole ecosystem I love it don't I but um, I've got like a tool that I use which um, I've grandly titled the cultural catalyst map but the idea is that it systemized that ecosystem kind of creates like a dashboard that's saying let's look nice. across all the parts of your um, organization that are likely to influence where you are now versus where you want to get to and let's red amber green those against your ideal state and then basically what you're doing is giving a single dashboard that's saying well here's your reds and here's your ambers let's figure out which one are going to give you the most bang for your buck to get closer to your ideal and then um, clients really use that to pick off the bits they want to work on but then continue to evaluate their progress so for me it's really important to support self-sufficiency so I set that up so that they can evaluate that re-evaluate themselves and their progress over time so then they can just use that you know, again, kind of going back to the tech space, you know, learning lessons from what's worked on really big implementations, taking a more sprint based approach. So let's yeah. do a few things, evaluate progress, see where our dashboard is, try a few more things and keep going in that way, which I think really, really keeps that focus and clarity in terms of what's important and where we are now rather than, oh, God, we've got this massive thing to do in the next yeah. five years. Yeah, I, I was glad that you mentioned that about kind of monitoring and evaluating as, as time goes on as well, because it's one thing to put in these great, uh, implementing a great um, new process or, or, or kind of uh, intervention when it comes to kind of cultural alignment and fit. But if you're not monitoring that and make sure that you're not drifting again in three months time or whatever, that's that's got to be a massively important thing. Um, well, it's a bit like guerrilla warfare. Like you, you must find this in leading your own team. You know, sometimes you think something's going to be amazing and really take hold, and they go, "Oh yeah, all right then." And it's exactly the same in culture. You know, you've got to go with where you know if you want to move the, the masses, you've got to go with what catches their attention. So often, um, if you try and create a single linear plan in culture change, you're going to be disappointed and frustrated. If you take small bursts, you can see what fires light, and you go with those. And for me, yeah. that agile approach to finding where what what builds momentum and, and pushing then as that as that ball rolls down the hill giving it all the support it needs to gain momentum and directing it that for me yeah. is the way to make the magic happen yeah love it yeah re, re, really love it um um so paula i can't believe the time i can't believe we've already done almost 40 minutes really enjoyed speaking to you it's been really really interesting um just to give you the opportunity to tell any of the listeners how they can get in touch with you if they want to speak about anything um, relating to their organizational culture how will they do that yeah well so um uh, as you said i'm i'm lurking in linkedin a lot so if people want to connect through my linkedin profile and send me a, d- a dm feel free um i'll give you a copy of my um either the free link to my ex index so if anyone's interested in just having a look at their current culture and making that yes. link um through then i'll provide that um and the only other thing is i'm doing a webinar actually in a few weeks time um the 18th of July on culture killers so if you check out my LinkedIn profile you'll find a bit more on that if you're a bit interested Perfect. in hearing a bit more detail about that fantastic can I come to that as well yeah absolutely always <laughs> okay I'll get myself signed up but yes we will put a link to the EX index and the information about the webinar all in the blog post that this goes out um as as part of um and yes we'll make sure that we get it out before that uh before that um, date of 18th of July for your webinar. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) We'll we'll do it by then. Brilliant. Well, um, Paula Brockwell, really, really enjoyed having you on Psych for Business. Thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Psych for Business. For show notes, resources, and more, visit evolveassess.com. Bye.